Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. Just want to say welcome to all of you. It's so good to see you all. Yeah, we are starting off uh, this new series, Christmas Light, as we are praying that, come Lord Jesus, come. We are anticipating the light of Christ coming, and, and we're asking him to illuminate those dark places in our lives, just in our situations where we need him. This week, I was at the hospital twice, uh, not because of myself or needing to go there, but just people in our church hurting, people uh, whose father going through quadruple bypass surgery on Tuesday, or whose baby was in the hospital because of RSV, respiratory um, disease, and going to the hospital, praying with those families, it just made me think, man, we all have stuff going on. We all have need of Jesus to come into our situations, into our lives. It also made me appreciate, man, beautiful thing about the church. Uh, the Moors are, have been in the hospital. The little baby Thaddeus is only two months old uh, this, this whole week with RSV. And I asked him on, uh, on Thursday, hey, uh, can we do anything for you as a church? And they're like, you know what? Honestly, people have just been rallying around us, bringing us meals and encouraging us and praying for us. So like without the church officially doing anything, like they've been taking care of us. I was like, praise God, that's, that's so good. That's why it is good to be a part of a faith community. So we can come around each other, that we can spur each other on. But I want you to ask yourself, like, where is it right now in your life that you're waiting for Christ to come and illuminate? Where are you needing Jesus to come and heal? We're in the season of Advent. You know, a lot of non-denominational, charismatic, Pentecostal, even Baptist churches don't really go through the liturgical calendar. And I think that we kind of miss something, though, because a lot of times in our non-denominational Baptist backgrounds, we just kind of go from celebration to celebration. But the ancient church calendar really teaches us to pause. And before we get to the celebration of Christmas, Advent is a time of waiting, of anticipation, of really, of kind of darkness as we wait for the light of Christ to come. And, and the season of Advent has a lot to do with the themes of light and dark, waiting for the light of Christ to come into the dark places of our worlds and our lives. Advent means arrival. We're waiting and longing for the arrival of Christ, for Christ to come heal, to shine his light. Christ came the first time as a little baby, and that's what we celebrate. And he's coming again at the end of our story as a mighty king to make everything right. Then the first coming, we're waiting eagerly for the second coming of Christ. But in between those two comings, we rightfully pray, come Lord Jesus, come into my life, into my situation, into what I'm going through right here, right now. And I want to encourage you in this season of Advent to, to ask, Jesus, where do I need you to come? Where in my life do I need you to come to shine your light, to heal, to redeem, to restore? If you're taking notes, I want us this month really, the two key words for Advent is anticipation and appreciation. Anticipation and appreciation. And that's a good thing to teach our kids as they anticipate Christmas and their eyes are shining. Maybe they see the Christmas tree and maybe you're going to go see Christmas lights. And there's that anticipation for what Christmas Eve is going to bring and Christmas Day. In the same way, we're anticipating Jesus coming. 
It's a reminder that the Jewish people were waiting, they were anticipating year after year and hundreds of years for the Messiah, for the Christ to come. So in the same way, we identify with that in this season. But then it's also a time of appreciation, of saying, wow, God, you've given us so many good gifts. I'm teaching our kids appreciation during this season to cultivate an, an attitude of gratitude. And so in our families, we want to be, we want to be anticipating. We want to also have appreciation. And so anticipating, okay, Jesus, we're, we're, we're asking you to come in, but now how, how do you want to use me this Christmas season? Maybe there's someone I'm in contact with, maybe a neighbor, a friend, a family member, and say, how can I bring some light? How can I bring some hope into their world this Christmas season? And then just an attitude of appreciation. Wow, Christ, you've done so much for me. How do I, how do I respond now with that appreciation? As we talk about the season of Jesus coming, I think everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Everyone has some kind of opinion about Jesus. And here at the Christmas season, people are more open to talking about Jesus because he shows up in nativity scenes. He shows up in different animated movies. So everyone has an opinion about Jesus. It's almost impossible to be neutral about him. I think sometimes we think of him as Mr. Rogers, who I love, but we think of Jesus maybe just skipping through a field of flowers, like patting little kids on the heads and handing out lollipops. Or maybe we think of Jesus as Dr. Phil, a therapist. And therapists are good, but maybe we just think Jesus is, or he's just there to fix everyone's problems. Or he's like Abraham Lincoln, a great historical figure who, you know, did some good stuff, but that, that's all he is. So there's a challenge for us and for those that we do life with. We have to sort through these stereotypes and figure out who Jesus really is and I think it's helpful to start with a little history on the, the birth of Jesus. Well, Jesus was born in a dumpy, rural, hick town of Bethlehem. You know, it's one of those small towns where, you know, the number one sport is NASCAR. You know, the number one dinner is Hot Pockets. And everyone sports a good mullet. Uh, and that's just the women in the town, you know. And as you probably know, Jesus was born to an unwed teenage mother, a girl named Mary. And even though Mary claimed that she'd been conceived by the Holy Spirit... In reality, a lot of people didn't really believe her and thought maybe she had hooked up with some Roman soldier and was not pregnant with his baby. And as Jesus grew up, really no one paid much attention to him. For the first 30 years of, of his life, he lived in relative obscurity. He was just average in so many ways. The prophet Isaiah tells us there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him, which I think is pretty ironic because every picture I see of Jesus, he looks like a GQ model, with a chiseled jaw and, you know, lamb over his shoulder, and he's, like, gliding with a halo on his head, you know. Um, that's not the picture we get of the actual, you know, physical, earthy Jesus. He never oversaw a large company. His resume is plain as can be. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from home, never went to college, never visited a big city, never wrote a book, never married, never held political office. In his lifetime, Jesus spoke to less people than gather at a Backstreet Boys reunion concert. For work, Jesus was a carpenter. We have some, some construction guys in our church, and that's what Jesus did. He carried a hammer. He, he, he carried a toolbox for a living. He framed houses. He put on roofs. He remodeled homes. Then at age 30, there's a turning point in his life. He puts down his toolbox and begins his ministry of teaching, of healing the sick, feeding the hungry, 
befriending those who were social misfits. And then three and a half years later, he's executed by the Roman Empire. Yet today, Jesus is the most famous person in all of history. More has been written about him, more artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone else has ever lived. He's so influential that we actually split our calendar into the years before and after his birth. So the question we all have to ask is, who is this Jesus, really, and why did he come to earth? Well, if you want to know someone, it helps to know where they came from, and that's where we're going to get going. And in Matthew, the first book of our Bible, uh, before we dive into God's word today, would you just join me in a word of prayer? God, I thank you that you are here with us. Thank you that Jesus came. And so we just pray now, as we are in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. In a very real way into our lives, into our situations, into the service, into our week. Jesus, we pray that we would lean on you, not on our own understanding. Jesus, I pray that everyone in here, that your peace that surpasses all understanding would guard our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that this morning, these will be your words, not mine. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Matthew 1.1, he starts off his gospel, his, his biography of Jesus this way. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As Matthew gets going, his introduction echoes the language of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. That word that Matthew writes there actually in the ancient Greek is actually translated, the word genealogy is actually the word Genesis. It's not just a title for genealogy, but a title for the entire story to follow. A new beginning with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and the kingdom of God. Matthew tells us the Genesis, the new beginning of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Yeshua, meaning God saves. And Christ is the anointed one. Matthew tells us he's the son of David. This evokes Images of a Messiah with a royal lineage who's going to establish the kingdom of God. And he's the son of Abraham. He wants us to remember God's original covenant with Abraham that established Israel as a chosen people and also affirmed that the world would be blessed through the line of Abraham. As we read the message and the genealogy of, of Matthew, the big idea he wants us to understand is that God keeps his promises. That God made these promises to David. That God made these promises to Abraham. And it took a long time, but God keeps his promises. God promised Abraham that through one of his descendants, all the world would be blessed. And finally, that's going to come to fruition through Jesus. That God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and reign, and his rule would last forever. And now through Jesus Christ, those promises are going to become true. So we learn that God keeps his promises. But look how long it took. Over a thousand years, people waited, but he did keep his promises. And on the way to fulfilling those promises, it's good to remember that things got pretty dark. It didn't look like God was going to come through. Maybe you're in a season where it feels a little dark. Maybe you're, you're losing a little hope. And you're wondering if God is going to come through. The 
story of the people of God is they felt that same way. There were 400 years in between the time of, of Malachi and Matthew writing his gospel. And all the kings had died out. The remnant of the people of God are living under the, the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire. And they're wondering how is a descendant of Abraham going to now bless the whole world when they're living under the oppression of Rome. But when Jesus came, he was a greater Messiah than they could possibly imagine. And here's the lesson that God always fulfills his promises, but he never operates on our timetable. I heard this quote this week that God comes to us like the sun in the morning when it is time. You know, the days are getting darker and darker. In just a couple of weeks, we're gonna start getting longer, which is great. But right now, I don't know about you, sometimes in the morning or maybe in the evening when it's five o'clock and I look outside and it's dark and it's like, what in the world? How is it so dark already? And, and we could wish the sun would rise quicker, but the sun rises when it's time. And the reality is God comes to us when it is time. Not on our own time schedule, but on his timing. And even the way God's working to fulfill his promises, it doesn't look like it, he's gonna come through, but when he does, it's gonna be greater than we can possibly imagine. God is not a tame God. He always fulfills his promises, but it, honestly, it almost always takes way longer than we think it should. Well, Matthew then, he, he goes into the genealogy of Jesus. And it's so easy to skip over these passages, but I think during the Christmas season, it's good to dive into these because there's a reason this is here. See, a lot of us aren't really interested in genealogies. We can barely name maybe three or four generations back. But in Jesus' day, that was very, very important to them. So we're going to read through what Matthew writes here. Sometimes it's called the Matthew's begats uh, in, in, in the King James Version. Uh, would you join with me as we just read this? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez is the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Josephat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, that's a lot of names. The first time we read through that, our eyes can glaze over a little bit. Like, what? Skip ahead to the good stuff. Where's the shepherds? Where's the wise men, right? But it's good, I think, to, to stop here. And I want to draw some attention to some of these names, and in particular, I want to draw attention to the women that Matthew mentions. First, it's incredibly rare in the ancient world that a genealogy would include any women. And Matthew doesn't include just one woman, he includes five. Matthew is scandalous here. 
It's very unusual to put any women in your genealogy, let alone five. Second, the character of the women he mentions is even more scandalous. Why are these genealogies even here? Why did Matthew put this in here? Well, in our society, if you want a place in the world, if you want to succeed, you have to have the right credentials. In our world, it's your resume. Where did you study? What have you accomplished? Where have you worked? And that's how you get a job. It's all about your individual accomplishments. But in the ancient world, in this time, 2,000 years ago, it was a much more communal society. It wasn't so much about what you have done, but what has your family done? It wasn't your resume that opened doors. It was your genealogy that mattered. The difference between our highly individualized culture and, and, and the time of 2,000 years ago. When Matthew wrote, it wasn't your individual resume that mattered so much. It was who your family is. What have they accomplished? What are they like? In ancient times, if you wanted a place in the world, you pointed to your genealogy. These are my people. This is who I come from. In our day, sometimes we leave things off our resume, right, to make ourselves look better. It's like, uh, I only worked at that job for a couple weeks, so I'm not going to put that on there. Because then they might call and be like, oh, that's, that's no good. So what do we do? We expunge our resume. You leave off anything questionable, and you only put the good stuff on your resume, right? Well, the ancient world is very similar. You would expunge your genealogy to remove those people, and your family history may make you look bad. Like, we even do that today, right? It's like, I tell my kids, like, yeah, don't tell people about your Uncle Jordan who cheers for the Bears. Like, you know, we don't want people to know we have a Bears fan in our family. And this, in the ancient world, is very, very similar. They, they would take people out who were, you know, they didn't want people to know about. Because you put people on your genealogy who showed who you were. Are you starting to see what's going on here? That Jesus puts five women on his resume. It wasn't that no one did that. It was just very, very rare. Why? Well, again, 2,000 years ago, it was a very patriarchal society. People cared who your fathers were, not necessarily who your mothers were. But the fact that he's got five women there, that's going to raise a lot of eyebrows for these first listeners. Why does Jesus have five women in his genealogy? And who they are is even more concerning. Ruth was a Moabite, and Rahab was a Canaanite. They aren't even Israelites. They were foreigners. They came from marginalized races or minorities you would normally expunge from your genealogy. Let's look at the first one mentioned, Tamar. Now, Tamar had the twins, Perez and Zerah, with Judah, the lion of Judah. And we've talked about him before. But Judah was her father-in-law. Now, it's a long, crazy story. You can get into it. But basically, Judah didn't do the right thing by Tamar. And so Tamar dressed up like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. And that's how she got pregnant with twins. That's Tamar. Next, there's Rahab. She's a foreigner. She's of the wrong race. She actually was a prostitute. She didn't just pretend to be a prostitute. She actually was. Then we have Ruth, a Moabite. Again, the wrong race, the wrong skin color. And, and uh, she also was a widow and rather aggressive in pursuing Boaz. In Jesus' genealogy, not only... You have gender outsiders, you have racial outsiders, you have moral outsiders, immoral people. See, the law of Moses excluded these people from worshiping in the temple. They weren't allowed in there. They were outsiders. Their skin was the wrong color. They were born in the wrong country. These women, according to the law of Moses, were permanently exiled from the presence of God. And yet, Jesus Christ brings them in. Jesus Christ 
brings people into his family that the law excluded. Why? Why would he do that? Remember, it's not just his family tree, it's his resume. Why is this important? Jesus is owning them and saying, I'm proud of them. So why does Jesus bring people in that the law of Moses excluded? Well, the answer is honestly, the rest of the book of the Bible. The rest of the New Testament explains why are outsiders invited to become insiders? But Matthew brings us a clue, and I want to encourage you to study the scriptures, study the New Testament. What does that mean that those who were previously outsiders are now invited to become insiders? But there's a clue that Matthew gives us. If you've been paying careful attention, maybe you, maybe you caught it. The clue is the woman that he hints at, but he doesn't name. Let's go back to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, remember the prostitute, she let the spies in. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And then Boaz was the father of Obed by, by Ruth, and she sleeps at his feet, and then they get married, and it's kind of crazy. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, the giant slayer, the great king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, by the, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. She had a name, the mother of Solomon. Do you remember? It's Bathsheba. Do you remember her story? Well, Bathsheba was David's wife, the mother of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He, he wrote the book of the Song of Solomon that we studied two years ago. But Matthew doesn't call her Bathsheba. Why does Matthew list Tamar and, and, and Ruth and Rahab and Mary, but he doesn't list Bathsheba? He calls her the wife of Uriah. Why, why does he do that? Now, this is not a slam on Bathsheba. Matthew would never do that. He never shames or demeans women, especially the victims of sexual assault. But this is an enormous slam on David. Why? Why is that? Because David's the one guy that everyone wants on your resume. He's the one guy you want on your genealogy. He's the ultimate insider, right? First, he's a male. Second, he's a king. He's the greatest king who ever lived. He wrote a bunch of the Psalms. He killed Goliath. So what is Matthew doing here? Why does he call her Uriah's wife? Why is he doing that? He's forcing us to remember the whole story. That there's more to David than just the highlights. Than just the king who killed Goliath. Who wrote the 23rd Psalm. He wants us to remember that Bathsheba was originally Uriah's wife. And David, David saw her, David lusted after her. He took her, he raped her, then he killed her husband. In one stroke, Matthew is forcing us to remember all that stuff about this great king. This great king that everyone wanted on their resume. And what Matthew is saying to us, I want you to understand King David, the ultimate insider, is no better than a prostitute. That the prostitute is right next to the king on the genealogy. 
what Matthew is saying, that the king had no more of a right to enter the presence of a holy God than a foreigner, than an outsider, than a prostitute. Yes, irreligious, immoral people don't deserve the love and forgiveness and kindness of God, but neither do religious, moral people. See, oftentimes the sins of religious, moral people don't look as obvious, but in their heart, do they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do they love their neighbor as themselves? No, we all mess up. We all don't meet that standard of perfection. Oftentimes, religious people's sins are the sins of pride or feeling superior or feeling like they're always right. And therefore, what is Matthew trying to tell us? That anyone who relates to God will have to relate to God through sheer grace because all of us are equally lost. The king and the prostitute, right next to each other, they're equally lost. But because Jesus brings them in, they are all equally loved. It doesn't matter how high or how low you are. It doesn't matter if you're an insider or an outsider. It doesn't matter if you've been the victim of sexual assault like Bathsheba or if you were born into a different country or a different skin color. You can experience the grace of God and be invited into his family. What is so incredible about the good news of Jesus is that even in Matthew's genealogy, it's so easy to skip over. It's dripping with love and grace. What does this mean? It means that it doesn't really matter who you are or what you have done. It only matters if you are in Jesus' family. Then and only then do you get a name. The only way you get a name, an identity that lasts, is by being connected to Jesus. The names we just read. Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and Mary, the unwed teenage mother of Jesus. They lived thousands of years ago, and yet we're talking about them in 2019 in Maple Grove. Why have their names lasted for thousands of years? Because they're connected to Jesus. Jesus said, hey, they're with me. And he offers the same invitation to you and me. Do you understand the honor of being a follower of Jesus, of being in his family? It means that Jesus is proud of you that he sings over you. Hebrews chapter tells, two, tells us that he's proud to call us brothers and sisters. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says, who cares what the peasants think if you have the love of the king? In this Advent season, whether you feel like an insider or an outsider, may you know that Jesus invites you into his family. That Jesus calls those who feel like they're broken and imperfect and people have sinned against them. Jesus says, you can be in my family. You are welcome. And so we want to live with a sense of anticipation and appreciation. Appreciation that, wow, it is nothing that we do that can earn his favor and salvation and merit into his family. It is strictly by the grace of Jesus that he invites us. Anticipation for what are you going to do? You know, the end of the year is such a great time 
to kind of rethink priorities and you know, there's something just naturally about January 1st coming. Where what are those things we want to change in our lives? I encourage you to spend this season now thinking about that. Spend some time asking Jesus, what do you want to do in my life at the end of this year, at the end of this decade? As we start a new decade, a new year. And, and may we all live with that knowledge that it doesn't matter what we've done, that Jesus invites us in. And so how do we respond? With that same love and appreciation for those around us. Jesus tells us to love everybody always. Jesus, the light of the world, he came to illuminate the dark places, to give us hope. Isaiah tells us the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And that light is Jesus Christ. And so now I want us all to ask, how can I reflect that light, reflect that hope, in a very practical way, in, in two weeks, as Josh mentioned, we're going to have a Christmas evening service here. We're not going to do a normal Sunday morning service. We're planning to do it on Monday night, and then we realize that's the big Packers-Vikings game. And you know what? Honestly, we don't want to compete with the Packers and Vikings. So we moved to the Sunday nights, which also is great because some of you I know are heading out of town, and you got Christmas Eve and Christmas Day plans. So you know what? Sunday night, we're going to gather together. We're going to have candles. We're going to have some Christmas movie clips. We're going to sing some of your favorite Christmas hymns. But also we're going to share the message of Jesus. That Jesus invites outsiders to come in. That you can find grace and healing and forgiveness. So I just want to encourage you. Is there someone that you could invite with you? Say, hey, our church is doing this evening service. One of the reasons we do special events at Mosaic is because if you invite someone to a special event like, hey, come to our Princess Sunday or come to Football Sunday or come to our Christmas Eve service, they're not rejecting your invitation to to church forever, they're saying no to that one invitation. Does that make sense? And so instead of saying, hey, would you come to my church sometime? And they say, no, well, you can't really ever ask them again. But if you say, hey, do you have anything going on Sunday night? Can you come with me to my Christmas Eve service? Sure. Or if you say, no, I'm busy, great. I'll invite you to the next one. So that's one of the reasons we do special events. People ask me sometimes, well, that's why. If someone turns you down for one event, they're not saying no forever. But it is a great opportunity. Around Christmas and Easter, people are just a little more open to spiritual things. And if we truly believe that we were outsiders, that we were filled with guilt and shame and, and, and God came and, and he forgave us and he invited us into our family, why would we not want to invite people to come and hear that message as well? In our small group this week, we talked about just the idea that we're here to snatch people out of hell. That we believe God gives everyone a choice to spend eternity with him, God, the giver of all good things, everything that is light and love and hope and healing and purpose and truth. Or at the end of our days when we die, to say, no, I want nothing to do with you, God. And so the consequence of saying, I want nothing to do with God is saying, I want nothing to do with anything that is good and true and love and light and hope and forgiveness and healing. And that is what hell is. It's a separation from our creator. It's a separation from all that is good and holy and true and warmth and love. 
And so if we are not choosing to follow Jesus and be with him forever, God says to us, okay, your will be done. If you want nothing to do with me, okay. That means him pulling away all that is good. And so if we believe that people who don't know Jesus, who haven't had that opportunity to find truth and life and love and hope, if that is where they're headed towards, a destiny and eternity apart from him, why would we not say, hey, come. Have an opportunity to meet with Jesus. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to understand all of Genesis or did Noah really build a big boat or did someone really go inside of a whale? Whenever I have conversations with people about those things, I say, hey, let's just put a pin in that. Let's talk about Jesus. Here's the story of Jesus. Here's these women that are part of Jesus' story. And Jesus even owns them. He even says, yes, they're part of me. I'm proud of them. The fact that they were born in the wrong country or they had things done to them, you know what? They're still part of my family. And Jesus comes and the outsiders he invites in and he gives away freely grace and forgiveness and healing. Let's talk about that story this month. Jesus came as the light of the world. We're here to reflect that light back to him. Would you stand with me? I invite the band to come up. One more practical way, as, as, we, as we prepare our hearts at the end of the year, again, just very practical, uh, of a season of appreciation is we encourage you to really think through, is there a way that you can give an end of the year uh, financial gift to Mosaic? Uh, the reality is right now, um, our, our giving has not quite hit our budget, and so we're going to have to uh, cut back on staffing, cut back on some ministry opportunities. There are things we want to do. There's ministry we want, we want to do uh, that we can't do because we don't have the financial resources for that. And your financial gifts helps us to be a place of hope, helps us to Sunday nights have a place where students can come, 6th or 12th graders, and, and have community and, and dive into the Bible, where if someone has a need, that we can meet those needs. And so I'd encourage you to really think about, is, is there an end-of-the-year financial gift that you can give to the church so that we can start 2020 on a strong place? And for those of you who are already givers, man, we thank you so much for that. We're going to receive our offer in just about a minute. You can drop those connection cards in there. We really appreciate that you, you fill those out. Uh, you know, just really, there's like one person that sees those connection cards. So feel free to put your prayer request on there. Then our staff just gathers on Tuesday. And we spend time uh, from about 9.30 till 10 o'clock every Tuesday morning. And, and we pray for you. And, we're, and we, we appreciate that you trust us enough to pray. And, and don't worry, you can put anything little on there. You know, you have a test or a quiz or, you know, a hangnail. Say anything big. Man, over the last four years, I've lost count. The number of prayer requests. I think my marriage is failing. I'm telling you, so many. So we want to pray. We want to encourage you. That's why we're here. We talk a lot that rows don't know. People in your row may look like everything's perfect, but it's not. We all have stuff. We all have junk. We all have stress and worry and fears and things we need God's healing touch to come into. So when you drop that prayer request off, our, our staff, our team, we pray for you. If today you need someone to pray with you, 
I'd love to pray with you. Any of our other staff members, Josh back on the drums, Josh over there. We got two Joshes. Don't leave here if you need someone just to put a hand on your shoulder to share. It doesn't matter what you've done or who's done to you. Jesus loves you so, so much. Let's pray and then we'll go out of here singing just one more song. Jesus, I thank you that you are here with us. And we just pray, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Shine a light into those dark places that we've been hiding from you. The secret sin, the secret shame, the secret guilt, the places where you feel like we're not good enough or we're not perfect enough or I'm not a good enough mom or a good enough husband we say come Jesus bring your healing light and Jesus I just pray that every one of us in these next couple weeks as we head towards the end of the year and towards celebrating Christmas that we just be filled with anticipation and appreciation we would ask how can we reflect that light how can we snatch people out of hell Introduce them to you, to, to your amazing, sweet, wonderful grace. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.